Ransomware uses software to extort people. A piece of ransomware might arrive in your inbox looking like a PDF or a link to a website with a redirect. Ransomware is often distributed using social engineering. The email address might resemble someone that you know or a transactional email from a company like Uber or Amazon. Tim Gallo and Alan Liska are authors of the O'Reilly book Ransomware, Defending Against Digital Extortion. They join me to describe the five stages of ransomware, deployment, installation, command and control, destruction, and extortion. Tim and Alan describe conditions under which it might make sense to pay the extortion and some frightening recent cases of ransomware impacting the real world. We'd love to get your feedback on Software Engineering Daily and how it impacts the real world. Please fill out the listener survey, available on softwareengineeringdaily.com slash survey. Also, Software Engineering Daily is having our third meetup, which is Wednesday, May 3rd at Galvanize in San Francisco. The theme of this meetup is going to be fraud and risk in software. We're going to have some great food, engaging speakers, and a friendly intellectual atmosphere. To find out more, go to softwareengineeringdaily.com slash meetup and hope to see you there. Tim Gallo and Alan Liska are the authors of Ransomware, Defending Against Digital Extortion. Tim and Alan, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you very much. We thanks. appreciate you having us on. Yeah, thanks, Jeff. Ransomware uses software to extort people. Stories about ransomware are sad and frightening, but they can also be somewhat entertaining. They can be interesting and instructive. You are both heavily engaged in this space and I want to start with a story from each of you about ransomware. It can either be a brief news story that illustrates a type of ransomware, or maybe a person who told you an anecdote, or something that you dealt with personally. Tim, why don't you go first? Sure. So one that comes to mind actually is an interesting, an interesting situation. It was it was kind of all over the news when the ransomware infections happened at a healthcare center based in the Baltimore area. A friend of my partner's was on her way to go get her chemotherapy at that health center. And she got there, everything was getting set up, and she was told basically to go home, that they weren't able to give her her chemo today, and that they weren't able to get into the systems or schedule anything. They would have to call her at some point in the future to be able to get her chemo. Now, this is one of those things where, you know, missing a day of chemotherapy when you have advanced cancer is not only, you know, potentially dangerous, but it put her, you know, put her life at risk. It was a few days before mm -hmm. she ended up getting, call, getting a call to get rescheduled when they had finally, mm -hmm. re, you know, remediated the, mm -hmm. the ransomware. And that's yeah. the kind of thing that just, you know, kind of breaks your heart when you see how something like this can happen and the, the types of effects that that can have on, you know, the, the real human effects that ransomware can have on people. Yeah. Well, we'll loop back to that example because that's one of the one of the most alarming examples that happened recently. I think we'll come back to both of these anecdotes, whichever they are, as cases in point. Alan, what's your example? So, oddly enough, mine also has to do with healthcare. I'm in the D Washington D.C. area and got a call from a friend of mine panicking because of the MedStar attack, and very similar, although not quite as severe. 
basically freaking out because, you know, she couldn't go see the doctor that day simply because they were shut down until they could figure out what to do. You know, it was not as severe as Tim's example, but yet another example of somebody just, you know, denied health care because of ransomware and, and having no idea what to do or what it meant and, you know, what the implications were, not just for her treatment, but for her medical records and so on and what that was going to mean to her. What's MedStar? MedStar, it's a hospital group. I don't know how how big it is around the country, but in the Washington, D.C. area, they own several of the hospitals. And in summer of last year, they were hit with a ransomware attack that shut them down for several hours. Hmm. So we'll go into a dissection of ransomware in a second. There are several families of ransomware. So before we get into the anatomy of a ransomware attack, give an overview of some of the types of families. Yeah, so broadly speaking, there are two different types of ransomware. Locker ransomware, which denies you access to a system. And you see that most commonly on cell phones. You know, you get a, a pop-up window that says your phone's been locked and then, you know, by the FBI or whatever. And until you enter in $50 worth of iTunes gift cards, you can't have access to your phone. Then there's also the crypto ransomware, which is the one that we're, most people are more worried about and, and is more common and generally affects PCs. And that is ransomware that infects your system that when it's downloaded encrypts files and doesn't allow you to have your files back until you enter in a key and that usually then you pay using generally bitcoin to get that key you enter in the key and hopefully get your files back the biggest example of that today is server which is the sort of the king of that but you see Spora, you see Locky, not as much, but that recently was a big one, and a few others like that. Hmm. Okay, well, let's break down the anatomy of a ransomware attack into the five stages that you two describe in your book. There's deployment, installation, command and control, destruction, and extortion, finally. Let's start with deployment. Tim, what happens in the deployment stage of a ransomware attack? So ostensibly, when dealing with deploying the ransomware, the criminal actors are going to find one of a few different methods to, to try to get the initial infection onto your system. The two primary methods that they use are via email or via some form of, of WebKit attack. And we see, you know, there's a, there's a pretty broad collection of attacks between the two. From an email perspective, it can be anything as simple as, you know, having these, you know, these attachments in an email where you open the attachment and it initiates the downloader that will then download the primary, the primary infection and begin the installation phase. From a WebKit perspective, it's a little bit different in so much as there may be malicious code hidden inside legitimate or illegitimate websites or links back to illegitimate websites that are hosting this, these exploit kits. When they see the browser footprint that you're presenting, they can validate that they can exploit specific vulnerabilities inside the browser that you're leveraging and use that to sort of choose which ammunition that they're going to use to drop a piece of ransomware at the end of the day, actually, to, to drop the code that will eventually install the ransomware. What's interesting is in many of these cases, they also use geolocation information to identify where you're at so they can leverage appropriate language 
you know, if you're in Germany, they want to make sure that they're posting everything up in German. If you're in the United States, they want it to be in English. If you're in Russia or the Ukraine, they don't give you the ransomware at all. Hmm. Tim, what are some of the more creative ways that you've seen ransomware delivered to someone's computer? So one of the most sort of interesting and, and it's ridiculous that it works, but it does, is just the simple emails that you see your UPS package is being delivered or your UPS package has been delivered, right? That's something that, that people will click on without even thinking. And if that's a link back to a ransomware drop site, it's almost you know, an immediate methodology for getting getting the information and the, the malicious code down to somebody's system. That in and of itself is so simple and yet so sort of sublime in that it just continuously works because people want to do that. There are many more nefarious ways and many more intriguing ways, but sometimes, you know, just simple is all you need. Mm -hmm. You both write about some preventative measures that can help ward off ransomware deployment. These are measures such as edge sandboxing and bare metal detonation. Alan, why don't you describe some of these? Sure. You know, there are two different approaches to how you protect yourself against ransomware. There are the edge defenses that you described, and, and there are a lot of great ways of doing that. So, you know, it's not enough just to have like a, a mail system, like a mail filtering system. You almost need a mail sandboxing system, something that's going to take those attachments and actually detonate them and see what they do, especially if they're compressed or if they're compressed with a password, you know, those type of things you really need to, to take a look at because that's some of the methodology. So those that's one way that, that it can be done, you know, when you're talking about intercepting email. Same thing with web-based attacks, you know, having a proxy that is constantly checking for new bad links and, and verifying those, those links, sandboxing and technology that sits between you know, the user and the internet that is looking at anything that's trying to be downloaded and examining it first, putting it back together. But sometimes there can be challenges with that, especially as we move to fileless ransomware where it's, you know, simply a script or it's base 64 encoded and doesn't become inexecutable until it hits the desktop. At that point, proxies and sandboxing can be more of a challenge or can be less effective. So I also recommend using a next generation endpoint solution, you know, using like a Sentinel One or a Carbon Black or something like that, that's looking at the behavior so that even if this fileless malware, you know, doesn't become inexecutable until it hits the desktop or it never becomes inexecutable, the fact that it's doing certain things can get flagged and alerted on. So, you know, things like using VSS admin to delete shadow copies, there's no legitimate reason for doing that. Or starting, you know, I mean, it's a little late then, but starting a mass encryption of files, you know, okay, that's not good. You, you know, go ahead and cut that off, and that way you only lose a couple of the files to the ransomware. And then the other half of that, and, and we'll, I'm sure we'll talk more about this soon, is educating the users, keeping them aware of what's going on, having them maintain that situational awareness. You know, in security, I think we make the mistake of 
thinking our users are too dumb to do anything and, you know, kind of blaming the users when they fall victim to these. But I think it's on us in security to do a better job of communicating with the users what to look for and, you know, what to be on the watch for. So that's the other half of this type of protection. And after deployment, the next phase of ransomware is the installation event. Tim, what typically happens during an installation event? So each family kind of has their own unique methodology once they've gotten onto the system itself. But ostensibly what we're looking at is they leverage some form of dropper and downloader install tool. So once they've gotten into the system, either through a PowerShell script because they're a you know a fileless piece of ransomware, or they've gotten into into the system through some of the more traditional means through an infected file or through a link, that initial case, in many cases, that's going to you know make its connections out to its C2 channels and ensure that it's got the appropriate code to begin the process of installation. Right, so that's getting all of its DLL hooks in place, ensuring it has appropriate system admin rights to begin the processes of encryption or browser locking, depending upon, again, we're primarily talking about crypto ransomware in this case, but to begin the processes of identification of files and encryption, it establishes itself ostensibly like any piece of malware on a system, right? So what it's going to do is get all the appropriate permissions to perform the actions it needs to do, as well as ensure the communication paths are clear. At that point, you know, we often see then it will begin the, the process of, you know, identifying the files that it wants to encrypt or the, the resources that it would like to lock. In the case of file encryption, you know, primarily they're looking for things, Word documents, looking for JPEG, bitmap files, looking for, looking for things that are of value, right? You know, office documents, stuff like that. So depending upon the, the end user, the value could primarily be in, you know, your Word and PowerPoint docs, or if it's a, a consumer end user, or, you know, your, your home system, the value primarily there is, is in things like your pictures. And so it does blanket searches across the environment for those files, begins to identify them, and then starts the encryption process. In the case of crypto lockers or crypto ransomware in general, that's what, it, that's what it's primarily doing encrypting them with the, the embedded keys that are associated with the with the malware itself. After the installation phase, there is the command and control step. And in this step, the ransomware takes control of the computer. It contacts the command servers looking for instructions. Alan, explain what happens in the command and control transaction. Sure. Note, not all ransomware uses the command and control phase. So some of the ransomware, some ransomware families have opted out of that simply because they want to keep everything self-contained out of fear of having the process disrupted. But generally speaking, what happens is once you know the ransomware is installed and everything's encrypted, or even during the encryption process, it may you know the ransomware may have to reach out to the command and control server to get the key to get the private key in order to do the encryption. Once it's done, it sends a note over to the to the command and control host saying, "Hey, we've infected this system," and it gives the details about the system that's infected. There are a couple of reasons for that. One, bluntly, metrics. 
so that the ransomware developers can keep track of the systems that are being infected, how it got infected, what the history of the installation was like, what worked, what didn't work, and so on. But also a big part of ransomware, and frankly a big part of the success of ransomware, is ransomware as a service where a novice or or a neophyte who wants to get into the ransomware business but doesn't want to develop their own ransomware will use somebody else's ransomware and the check-in allows them to verify that yes you know i've had this done they can go check the portal and see how many victims have successfully had the ransomware installed so the ransomware at that point the check-in is simply hey we're you know we're in here's the information about the system and you know the files have been encrypted or we weren't able to encrypt everything or it was disrupted or whatever now there's the other part of that where ransomware doesn't always operate alone so there are some ransomware families that will throw down ransomware but then also throw down a, an info stealer or a keyboard logger or whatever and so those secondary pieces of malware will also be calling back to the mothership to report in with any keystrokes logged with any information that was able to be stolen etc so you know there are really two reasons for it to check in okay so you mentioned like some of the services some of the malware or sorry, the ransomwares do not want to do a command and control. Is that because in order to reach out to an external server, you might accidentally expose who the bad actor is? Because if, if you reach out to an external server, presumably you're reaching out to, hey, calling home, and then if, you know, if there's a trace from that to the bad actor, that could be incriminating, or is it for a different reason? So it's got less to do with incrimination, because in most cases, there's so many layers of obfuscation between the, the criminal actor and, and the supporting command and control infrastructure, and got more to do with disruption. If I'm doing a good job of monitoring outbound web traffic and I'm running you know, SSL decryption across my environment and, and I'm identifying outbound communications to see those types of comms to known C2 channels or you know, the suspicious URLs, things that are that look like DGAs, that allows me to, as a network defender, to, to interrupt the communication and, and potentially quarantine and or enforce a, you know, a, a wipe and rollback on those end user devices, potentially. So it's an attempt to avoid the disruption, less about the incrimination. I mean, very rarely do we actually see these guys get get caught because of these communication paths. Now, that, that is something that eventually through, you know, large-scale analytics you can do, or if somebody has poorly coded their system or hasn't put in the appropriate layers of obfuscation, they can. But but in most cases, there's there's enough layers of that that it's very difficult to find the actual bad guy. Alan, the final two phases are destruction and extortion. Can you describe what happens in these two stages? Sure. So... Destruction can mean one of two things. Generally, destruction is, you know, getting rid of any, getting rid of any system, any unnecessary program. So whether that's the loader, whether that's the initial executable, anything that's not needed. So you don't want to leave any evidence behind for forensic analysis. I mean, there's already enough forensic capability. So unlike other types of malware which tries to be stealthy 
you know, most ransomware developers are proud of their ransomware and they'll they'll include the name you've been infected by server or by Locky or crypto wall or whatever. And so, you know, and that'll be in the ransom node. It'll be based on what the, you know, extension that's used. And so that is the identifying information's there, but they don't necessarily want to leave behind how they got on the system so there'll be that kind of cleanup and then there's some ransomware that isn't really ransomware it's just there to destroy files and so it'll pop up a ransom note but it'll actually destroy your files in the process so there is no there are no files to recover for ransomware that's not like that the ransomware that is then the recovery part is you know, the person pays the ransom, the victim pays the ransom, you know, with however many Bitcoin it is. They're given a key, they enter the key in, and that allows them to decrypt the files. Hopefully. Yeah, so let's get into the discussion of the ransom. In your book, you talk about the factors that a victim should consider when deciding whether to pay the ransom. What are those factors that they should take into account? You know, obviously, the, the first thing you've got to take into account is similar to the two stories that we, that we had talked about today is how fast can you get your business up and running and our lives at stake, right? I mean, that, that's, I think, a, a key component there. In many cases, like the two we, that we, we discussed, I can't remember off the top of my head, and Alan would have to, to correct me, but I, I think, I know in the one, they, they did not pay the ransom. They just recovered everything but backup. I don't know about the MedStar off the top of my head, and, and Alan, you probably have more details on that one. But ostensibly, that's one of the first things you've got to consider is what are the impact of business operations? Now, if you've, if you've taken the appropriate steps and built incident response playbooks that include things like how do I respond to ransomware? Do I have effective backups? Am I doing sort of continuous backup and monitoring of the devices? What's the size and scope of the infection? Do I have mapped drives all over my environment? And because this system was was infected, it's actually infected a number of my servers as well because I've, they've had mapped access to these drives. Those are all factors to take into account from a, sort of an information architecture perspective. When you're looking at it, you know, in a smaller you know, home environment, you know, it just comes down to do you have backups of all your all your pictures of, of everything that you want to keep? What have you done to protect yourself preventatively? And by performing those preventative steps, it makes it so you shouldn't have to pay the ransom and instead can just restore those files from backup. One of the things that happens a lot, though, is people don't test their backups. So not only do you have recent backups, but have you validated them? Are they actually working? If you're using tape, are the tapes available? Or are they sitting there somewhere else? If you're using you know, a disk, have those disks been compromised? Do you know if they have or haven't? And has your detection of the ransomware mapped to when the last backup was so did you actually back up the locked files unintentionally right these are all the things that you've got to take into account when you when you assess is it appropriate for me to say forget about it i'm just gonna you know pull from pull from the backup or this is serious i need to get up and running asap i mean if i had my way we would never have to pay the ransom simply because you're contributing to their research and development by funding these criminals, you're just ostensibly, you know, funding them to continue to make their product, their, their ransomware more effective and any other criminal activity they may be engaged in. Who falls victim to ransomware? Is it always big companies and hospitals or is it also individuals? 
It's interesting because ransomware is somewhat indiscriminate, especially ransomware delivered via email. You know, the at the height of its popularity, Locky, the team behind Locky was sending out 10 million emails a month. So they weren't just hitting corporate networks, they were hitting, you know, individual networks and so on. One of the really fascinating things we found out in doing the research for our book was that the home email providers, so that's Gmail, Outlook.com, and even to some extent Yahoo.com, actually do a really good job of filtering out ransomware emails. So the home user rarely sees them. You know, at any given day, if I need a ransomware sample, I can go into my Gmail spam folder and I'll have a half a dozen of them that I can pull out and use as a sample. But I never actually see them in my inbox. So while home users are getting hit just as often as commercial users, they aren't seeing the ransomware as often. And that's because many businesses don't have the type of protections that they need in place. They, they aren't running a mail filtering software or they're certainly not running you know, email sandboxing or anything like that. Those protections aren't there you know, because, well, I, I don't want to say definitively because, but it, it seems to me that most companies are focused on protecting the network at the edge not thinking about email as actually part of the edge. So strong firewalls, strong IDSs, strong proxies, but not necessarily strong email protections. Who are the perpetrators who are making ransomware? Well, the manufacturer, the code writers themselves, typically fall down to, it's actually a fairly small group, I would say. I mean, there's there's a few different families. I think we're you know tracking... I guess it's maybe 12, 13 total families that I've got that I'm monitoring myself. But it's not a lot. And these are all criminal organizations that are in this for the, you know for financial gain. It's not something that's typically handled through nation state actors. However, based upon a lot of the geofencing that we see in ransomware infections in particular, it would lend itself to believe that most of the folks that at least are on the samples that I've seen are in Eastern Europe, primarily Russia, Ukraine, those areas, simply because there's a lot of geofencing that prevents installation and deployment of the ransomware inside the end user environment in those areas, particularly to avoid prosecution. Mm. So you're saying that because the ransomware itself has been written in a way that prevents it from being installed in Russia or or the Ukraine, that is indicative that probably the people who are writing it live in those places. Yeah, yeah. And that's kind of a twofold thing. One, you wouldn't want to infect your mom's computer or your neighbor's computer. But two, and I think the, the more important reason is by not performing the criminal activity inside your your legal boundary, if you will, whether that's a, a nation or a, a province or whatever it happens to be, you're limiting the risk that you have from a criminal prosecution perspective, simply because it's no longer local resources that are attempting to catch and arrest you and prosecute you. Instead, it's international resources that have to rely on cooperation with local resources. And if you're making the 
you know, tens of millions of dollars necessary to do this on the back end of something like this, it, it's possible that, that you, and again, this is all hypothetical and alleged in these cases, but that you could protect yourself very effectively with good lawyers and or good criminal protection. Yeah. In other words, nobody wants to go to a Russian jail, even people in Russia. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Much better put, Alan. Thanks. <laughs> are the people who are making ransomware the same people who are deploying it? Really good question. There does seem to be some overlap with some of the teams. Like, you know, the Locky ransomware was exclusively using Drydex infrastructure. So that that kind of ties in that, yes, those two are connected. But then you see things like Spora or Cerber that bounce around from different types of exploit kits and different types of delivery methods, which tells me that they are focusing strictly on developing the ransomware and making the best ransomware possible and then renting out these exploit kits or renting out the botnets that deliver the spam and allowing those people to be really good at what they do. So we're going to make the best ransomware possible. You make the best exploit kit possible or you make the, the best spam delivery system possible. And, you know, really that specialization that they'll, they'll focus on what they do and count on the fact that there's already an infrastructure there for them to piggyback on and they can take advantage of it. And of course, they're making enough money that they can afford to rent that out and, and pay it. Have you guys met any of the perpetrators in this space, either people who are writing it or distributing it? I have not met in person. However, a lot of the ransomware developers have chat support rooms, and I've had a couple of conversations with them. They are surprisingly engaging and very willing to share information to a certain point about what they're doing and, and you know how they go about it and so on. So it's really an interesting conversation to have and so on. Nobody's invited me into their home yet, and that's probably a good thing. I'm not sure that I want to go to Estonia or the Ukraine. <laughs> what drives these people? Money. I mean, thinking about this from the perspective of economics, right? Looking at the traditional methods for creating value out of hacking when you're a criminal right? Primarily, your your targets in the past were things like, okay, I would go try to drop key loggers so I can get passwords and usernames for, for banking websites, so banker trojans. I would attempt to install myself on point-of-sale devices to be able to grab to be able to grab untokenized or to be able to grab card stripe data so I can so I can replay transactions and steal that. To go after big fish and try to get large volumes of credit cards so I can use them and resell them or, or, or something along those lines. Those all require multi-tiered infrastructures to be able to sell the information that you've stolen or to be able to somehow monetize it. Why would I, as a criminal, why would I want to give 40% of my take to somebody who all they're doing is you know, reselling what I've managed to steal, right? If I can find a way to go directly, and again, using economic, using just sort of economic terms, if I can find a way to go directly to my consumer, in this case, the person for whom I am installing the ransomware, and get money directly, why wouldn't I do that? 
And then I can find alternative methods to monetize and create value out of my work product, right? So I've developed this this new ransomware. It manages to get past all the, the current network, email, and endpoint detection capabilities. So I've got this. I've made my couple million off of it. And now I want to, to make additional money. So let me set up a service where people can sell me, you know, can bring me giant lists of email addresses or, or we can partner with spam bots for delivery of these emails and get this directly out to consumers. So now I've created a, a business network ostensibly where I can share, share in the proceeds and continue to make revenue off of a product that may be a generation or two old. Do you meet white hats in this space who used to be black hats, who used to distribute ransomware or build ransomware, and they've since become white hats? No, I haven't seen anybody in this space. That doesn't mean they don't exist, but that is not a group of people that, that I've met. Part of it is ransomware is relatively new. So even though there have been a number of high-profile arrests and busts and so on, I personally haven't met anybody who has worked with ransomware and then switched over to deliver white hat or become a white hat. I don't know, Tim, have you? No, not not in this case. And part of the reason I think is simply because, you know, we're still on the on the highly financially viable side of it. <laughs> They're still making good money and the few folks that have been busted and are in jail right now, I, I haven't heard of any of them flipping, you know, going full full white hat yet. That's right. Remorse only comes when it's convenient. That's true. <laughs> Absolutely. So, do you know if any of this ransomware gets delivered via adware? Like, if you go to a website where the advertisement inventory is not safe and you click on the wrong ad and you get ransomware? Yes, absolutely. So that is a... While email makes up the primary delivery mechanism... Exploit kits and especially exploit kits delivered via malvertising, you know, that that's the second most common way of delivery. And there are a lot of different ransomware families that have gotten their start that way because, you know, it's somewhat easier. And that's where we also have seen a lot of the developments in the fileless ransomware. So, you know, ransomware delivered entirely as a JavaScript file or something like that, where that has, you know, been delivered traditionally through uh, malvertising. Let's talk about some of the popular ransomware today. Last year, there was Locky released. What does Locky do? So Locky is actually kind of faded out as far as we can tell. There's been a huge drop-off since the end of December in Locky distribution to the point where it's just a, a trickle. But Locky is very traditional in terms of ransomware. It's an executable that's generally pulled down from an office attachment so you have a Microsoft Word attachment, you open it up, it says, oh, you need to enable macros. The macro will either call a PowerShell script, which then pulls down the Locky executable, or you know, depending on you know which version of Locky, et cetera, that you're talking about, the macro may actually pull the ransomware executable down directly and you know, hit that, you know, you hit that ransomware 
it executes, it runs, pay the ransom or don't pay the ransom, but your system's encrypted. Blocky was by far the most popular ransomware delivered last year. By some estimates, the people behind Locky pulled in more than $300 million last year. Wow. Yeah. So, so, just a little bit less than Tim makes in a year. Okay. <laughs> you guys talked about these healthcare systems earlier that got attacked. What was the ransomware that attacked those hospitals? So, and I'll be quite blunt, I don't know the, specific, the specifics behind which piece of ransomware it was that it hit my friend's hospital. She had, you know, after she got the call, they, they gave her probably a little more information than they should. She did a little a little baseline social engineering to find out exactly what was going on because, you know, obviously she was very distraught. And they just had told her that it was that it was ransomware specifically. As far as the MedStar attack goes, I cannot remember exactly which one it was. Do you remember, Alan? I'm not sure that they released the name of it. I do know that it was delivered as an attachment. And I yeah. think with most of the medical ransomware that we've seen, it's been primarily delivered as an attachment. Generally, an invoice, what looks like an invoice, click, open, etc. But most of the most of the healthcare systems that we've seen that get reported as an infection don't list the specific ransomware that was involved in the attack. And when these, you know, if you're a victim and you decide to pay. How are you typically making that transaction? Primarily, you're somehow acquiring Bitcoin, right? So if, if you don't have a Bitcoin wallet, you know, you're leveraging Bitcoin to, to pay these guys off. Typically, there's a URL or a string where you're supposed to enter your, the Bitcoin in, information and, and pay them in that way. That, that's the easiest way. Now, some of the ransomware associated with mobile devices, they really tend to use a lot of different things. And some of the older variants, uh, we're talking a few years ago, didn't use Bitcoin. They used prepaid visa cards you know they, they give you specific instructions and and in some of the the mobile variants it's you know get itunes itunes cards those however really aren't quite as common i i think today it's primarily bitcoin as the methodology for payment so we talk about the different platforms that you can target with ransomware what are we talking about are we talking about only windows machines or is it also mac and mobile devices so we have seen limited success in targeting Macs. Key Ranger was probably the most successful Mac ransomware, but it wasn't done through exploitation. Instead, with Key Ranger, it was a trojanized file. So it was a, a BitTorrent downloader that contained ransomware. So if you downloaded this particular BitTorrent downloader and executed, it actually was ransomware, so you had to forcibly execute. We have seen some science fair projects that targeted Linux systems that theoretically showed how you could execute ransomware on a Linux system, so it is possible. We haven't seen anything like that in the wild that targets human interaction of you know enabling ransomware so what we have seen is like the mongodb ransomware where there was a vulnerability in mongodb and you know somebody wrote a bot that would encrypt it and then demand ransom that's a little bit different than what we're talking about here it's still the same concept though if you want your database back you need to pay us in bitcoin and then we haven't seen any 
crypto ransomware on mobile devices. Theoretically, it's possible on Android to do that. But really, we see pretty much all locker stuff. We don't see any encryption because most people back up their mobile devices to the cloud, at least at some level. And so it's very easy just to wipe and, and replace your wipe and restore your mobile devices. Yeah. The same, I, go ahead. I'm sorry, Tim. No, I was going to say, yeah, on the mobile devices in general, because a lot of because there's a lot of cloud interaction directly on those devices because of the small footprint until somebody has developed ransomware that not only is encrypting the files on device, but also in the cloud, it'll primarily be focused on this on the, the locker-style ransomware. Now, we saw with Mirai Botnet what can happen when we have unsecured devices hijacked. For those who don't know, Mirai Botnet was this botnet where you had a, a camera distributor or camera manufacturer that puts a full Linux distribution in every camera, and they use the same username and password on all of the cameras that they produced. And then the Mirai botnet was this botnet that just went out and scanned the internet for cameras that fall under that description and tried logging in with the default username and password. They were able to, and the Mirai botnet was harnessed to lay DDoS attacks against Amazon, which knocked out Netflix and, oh gosh, or I guess it was Dyn. I guess they DDoS Dyn. Anyway, the DDoS was horrible, but what I think is like, you take over a camera, you could just take pictures of somebody and then use the pictures as ransom. So does it seem to you guys like we are in the earliest of the early days of ransomware? So one thing that I uh, that that I you know think is the idea that we've got where we're talking about ransomware specifically going after you know denying somebody access to a system or their files as the primary thought process for ransomware right that's that's one thing that we definitely you know that that we look at and and we're thinking about it today that's how we react to it the next step and we're seeing this happen a lot where just like the Dyn attack using Mirai is that. I'm not just denying you access to your system or files by dropping a you know something on your endpoint that is causing your oh. endpoint to be useless, but I'm denying you access to your system or your network or your files by pointing a different weapon at you. And in the, in in the case of Mirai, by pointing that botnet at you and saying I will make your I will make your network unusable unless you pay. That's kind of a you know ostensibly extortion is extortion. And so that is also requesting a ransom, and that, in my mind, now there are there are those that definitely disagree with me on this, but in my mind, that's that's an extension, and sort of that next step is how else can I take over things or do things to get money directly from somebody, as opposed to trying to steal something and then sell it? How can I just get money directly from people? I think taking photos of humans using these cameras and then attempting to ransom them attempting to extort them in some way is a little more complicated because you've got to have additional levels of background on the person themselves to know, hey, is it something that they wouldn't want to get out that they were pictured going into a hotel at, at two in the morning or, or something like that? And the amount of additional work associated with that, unless you're targeting somebody very specifically, probably isn't as high volumetrically speaking from a monetary perspective. But I think Tim hits on an excellent point as far as ransomware in moving from just 
I'm going to lock out your PC to what can I do to embarrass your business. We saw that with the San Francisco Muni system. Now, they didn't pay, but that was the whole point behind this. I'm in your system. I can show everybody in the world that you've been compromised unless you pay me. Or I am showing everybody that you've been compromised. I've embarrassed you. Now you should pay me because otherwise I could make it worse. I'm a bit of a contrarian when it comes to ransomware on IoT, only because most IoT systems are headless. Now, that's changing, you know, you talk about, yeah, everybody likes to joke about the connected refrigerator and toaster, etc. So if they have little screens on them, maybe that's different. But if you infect my router, so if I've left my router unsecured, you infect it and you install ransomware, I will never know about it. My internet may stop working, so I'm going to call my ISP and say, hey, fix my internet, and they're going to, we can't, we don't know what's going on, we're going to send you a new router, you know, I'm going to get a new router, plug it in, I'm never going to know that that router was infected. Some technician back at Verizon might know that eventually, but I personally will, will never know about it. And even then, as disposable as a lot of these home routers are, Verizon probably takes it and drops it to be recycled somewhere. So, you know, they may never find out about it. Hmm. I know we're up against time. You guys have been in this industry for a long time. What do you do on a day-to-day basis? Are you writing software or are you consulting with companies? Let's close off with just describe what your work is. So, Alan, I think yours is so much more interesting. You should go first. (laughs) I work for a company called Recorded Future, and Recorded Future specializes in threat intelligence. My day-to-day job is to help our customers better integrate the flow of threat intelligence into their processes. So oftentimes, people will have threat intelligence sitting in one bucket and then they'll have their logs from their different devices sitting in another bucket or in multiple buckets. And so the threat intelligence isn't necessarily providing them immediate and actionable value. And to me, that makes it not really threat intelligence. That makes it you know interesting information, but until you can actually apply it you know, in an in a automated and, and regular way, it's not threat intelligence. So that's kind of what I do on a day-to-day basis. And then separately from that, Tim and I talk several times a month. Just I don't want to say mentor because we've both been in the industry the same amount of time, but we're you know, we have a lot of ideas, share a lot of ideas and kind of work together. And and I highly encourage that in the industry to find people that you know, and just call them up and talk about security stuff. Sometimes it's often better than chatting with your family about it because they don't roll their eyes. (laughs) Yeah, my day to day is so I'm a cybersecurity specialist at Symantec. So my day-to-day involves, you know, working with, with our customers to talk about looking at their holistic cyber defense platforms. What are they doing for cloud decor monitoring and engagement of their systems to be able to do log analytics, incident response, and assessing their overall incident response programs, plans, and playbooks. And then also working with their threat intelligence teams, if they have dedicated threat intelligence teams to help them better understand and implement operational as well as strategic intelligence practices to move towards an intel-guided network 
and information defense system. So I, I, I find myself working with customers and talking a lot about, you know, what it is that they're doing from an operations perspective, what it is that they're doing to provide better defenses in their networks and looking at their holistic security architecture and the operations that underpin it and help them find ways that they can get better at it. All right, guys. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you about ransomware, and I'm following your work closely. I, I was really entertained and amused or intrigued, I think is the right word, when I was going through some of the material that you have both prepared. So thanks for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Thank you so Thank much you. for having us, and we really appreciate the great work you're doing, keeping people informed on just such a wide variety of topics. You're very welcome. <laughs>